Solomon knew that the sun rotated around the earth for hundreds of years. This was understood to be common knowledge. That is until in the 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus discovered that it was not the sun which rotated around the earth, but the earth that rotated around the sun. It was a revolution in astronomy. It changed everything. And as we come to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, we find a Copernican-style revolution. As we who are sinners have our perspective on reality completely reoriented. You see, left to ourselves, we quite naturally are bent in on ourselves. We, we perceive the whole world as revolving around me. And what we find in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the whole world revolves around God. Paul hits us with a greeting and then an opening salvo in verses 3 through 14. It's one long sentence in the Greek just cascading with blessing after blessing. It's as if Paul is trying to take us by the hand and and pull us underneath the waterfall of God's grace. He's summoning us to praise God. You see it right there in in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually the main idea of the whole sentence of verses 3 through 14 is to bless God, to praise God. That's the main purpose. That's the main purpose of all of reality. The praise of the glory of the grace of God. The rest of this sentence is just Paul piling up reasons for you, Christian, to bless and to praise God. And so, big picture, he's saying, bless God, praise Him for His election of you, Christian. His choosing to adopt you into His family. Praise Him, Christian, bless Him for His redemption of you. That's verses 7 through 10. And then in verses 11 through 15, he's saying, Praise God, Christian, for the inheritance that is guaranteed to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're taking a a big picture kind of outline of these verses, 3 through 6, we're talking about election. 7 through 10 is about redemption. And then 11 through 15 is about the inheritance that is promised to the saints through the sealing of of the Holy Spirit. It is a majestic section of Scripture. Which is why we've tried to chop it into bite-sized pieces as we work through it. There's just so much here. And so we're going to narrow our attention on verses 7 through 10 today. And the main idea of these verses is simply this, that we ought to praise God for redemption. That's what Paul was calling us to do. And I want to encourage you, to exhort you in response to God's wonderful work of redemption in your life, saint, 
to enjoy the freedom, forgiveness, and fearlessness that are yours in Christ. We're going to work through the text by asking those questions in our outline. What is redemption? Who needs redemption? How is redemption accomplished? And why is redemption even possible? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, you are the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And we are sinners who have rebelled against you and your rule. We've cast off your goodness and your kindness. And yet, you've chosen to set your love on us still. Indeed, you have saved us from the hell we deserve. Lord, in these verses, we, we find so many reasons to praise you. We ask that, that you would press them onto our hearts and into our souls and into our very bones today. Do not let us leave here with silence in our hearts, but cause for a melody to ring therein. Fill us with joy at what you have done. Teach us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 3 and read on down through verse 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have redemption. What is redemption? Biblically speaking, redemption is freedom from slavery upon a payment of ransom. This is an idea that would have been pretty common in the ancient world in which Paul is writing. People would redeem people from slavery pretty regularly, and you would pay to bring them out of slavery. But, but I think probably more pertinent in the background here is the exodus of the Israelites. I mean, you remember this story, right? Israel ends up in Egypt, attempting to avoid a famine. God raises up Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh so that he's functioning as sort of a prime minister. And things go very, very well for the people of God. That is until we get to Exodus chapter 1. And Genesis closes with the death of Joseph and 
Exodus chapter 1, we, we learn that there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And as God blesses his people and they continue to grow and to multiply, Pharaoh gets more and more anxious concerned with insurrection. And so his hand-wringing results in a heavy yoke upon the people of Israel. And so they cry out for God's help. We read in Exodus chapter 2 that God saw, God heard, God knew. We also learn that he had been raising up Moses that he might deliver his people from the Egyptians. It's not so simple, though. Pharaoh, when he's told by Moses to let the people go, refuses. The Nile is then turned to blood as the judgment of God. And subsequent plagues to express God's displeasure with Pharaoh happen. There are boils and bugs and hail and frogs and and others. Nevertheless, Pharaoh will not let God's people go. Until finally we come to that tenth and final plague wherein God tells Moses that he is going to bring his judgment on the land of Egypt so that the firstborn son in every household will be killed by the angel of death. He then gives Moses instructions. He says, if your people are to be saved from my right judgment, they must take a blemishless lamb and slaughter it. And eat it. And they must take the the blood of that Passover lamb and they must put it and smear it above the doorposts of their house. That way, when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood on the house, that a blood of a sacrifice has been offered, and that angel will pass over that house. God brings about his final plague, and the result of his judgment is death. There are many dead firstborn sons throughout the land. And there are many saved sons in the houses of the Israelites. God's judgment results in the people's freedom from slavery. And God's provision for the sins of the people saves them from the judgment that they are owed. They are redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and into sonship. This is what Paul has in mind when he's talking about redemption. He has in mind a freedom from slavery that comes upon the payment of a ransom. But if we stop there, I don't think that we've gone far enough in understanding redemption. Because you see in the text, Paul, he gives us, he brings up this idea of redemption. He says, in him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That's the manner in which redemption is accomplished. We'll get there. So that's the idea. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And then he's going to give us an explanation of what he means by redemption. He says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses are offenses against God, sin, that which we have done wrong. And so to understand redemption a little bit better, what Paul has in mind, yes, we we want to see it as a freedom from slavery upon the payment of a ransom, 
and we want to understand it as the forgiveness of trespasses. So if that's what redemption is, I think a pretty logical question to ask is who needs redemption? Who needs redemption? Maybe you're here and, and you're saying to yourself, okay, I get it. Uh, redemption is to be freed from slavery and to be forgiven of sins, but you know, I'm not in slavery. Furthermore, I'm a pretty good person. I'm in church after all. I don't kick dogs, I pay my taxes, and I even recycle. What? I mean, I'm nice to people. Just mess up every now and then. So what? I don't even know that I really need forgiveness. What if I told you that the Bible says that even though you don't know it, you are a slave to sin if you don't know Jesus? What if I told you the Bible says that even the smallest of your sins is an infinitely abhorrent rebellion against the holy God who made you? What if I told you that you might not know it, but you are in great danger? Like a child eating hemlock. You might not feel like you are in trouble, but death is just over the horizon. Those who sin are slaves to sin. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, air quotes there, believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And aside there, those who follow Jesus love his word. They continue in his word. Verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. So how can you say you will become free? And Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And we know the wages of sin is death. All of us, apart from Christ, have earned death with our very lives. Sin, and we defined it earlier a little bit, right? Is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created not being or doing what he requires in his law. So when you live without any reference to God, you are in rebellion against God. You are ignoring the rule of your rightful king. You have betrayed the purpose for which you were created. And the king rightly judges you for your treason. 
We are all, all of us, apart from the gracious work of God, sinners. So who needs redemption? All of us. You need redemption. How how do we take hold of redemption? How can we be redeemed? How is redemption accomplished? Look there in verse 7 again. In Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. And so redemption comes by way of through Jesus' blood. Now, if you're like me and you're reading your Bible and you, you, you come to a, a section like this, you go, why blood? Seems a little weird, right? How does blood and, and redemption, how do those two things tie together? Many of you are very smart people and you're going, we studied Leviticus and so we know exactly why blood. But for the one or two of you that don't remember, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Two things to notice from this verse. First, atonement or redemption is possible only because God has made it possible. He's he's made it an option. In His graciousness and in His kindness, He has given blood so that atonement might be made. And the second thing to recognize is that blood symbolizes life. Right? If you you have a body with no blood in it, the body is dead. And so what we have in Leviticus, what, what, what the law teaches, is that the only way to rescue a sinner who is rightly condemned to death is by substituting the life of another. Only life can purchase a rebel out of death. And in Leviticus, we see that that blood both purchases the people out of sin and purifies them from the pollution of sin. And so we, we see that it is through substitutionary sacrifice that people can be freed from sin and forgiven of sin. But, but don't misunderstand me here and don't misunderstand the Bible's whole teaching on this matter. The blood of goats and bulls has no power to take away sin. Never did. No one was ever made right with God because of the blood of a sacrificial animal. 
Sin was too serious to be dealt with with the life of livestock. What do I mean? The Passover, the sacrificial system, and the whole temple complex was all a shadow intended to be followed to the foot of Calvary's hill. Where the blood and the sacrifice that could actually accomplish salvation for God's people was shed. The author of Hebrews tells us this explicitly in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. This is what he says. For since the law has but a sh- is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How marvelous is the book of Hebrews? How marvelous is God's plan of salvation? Jesus is the true and better temple. Love that in John 1, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. For it is in Christ where man meets God. Jesus is the true high priest who makes atonement for our sins. He he brings God and man together. He's the perfect mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. He's the true and perfect sacrifice. He's the Passover lamb who makes atonement for sins once and for all. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Oh my. Don't don't miss this. 
The wickedness of sin is so wicked, so vile, so abhorrent that nothing less than the blood of the Son of God could atone for it. Your sin is so serious, all of it, that it took the death of Jesus Christ, God's Son, for you to be forgiven. And listen, God planned it. He planned it according to his good pleasure. The cross was not plan B. It was plan A. This is how much God loves his church. This is how much God loves you. Jesus did not have to die for anyone. He chose to. He laid his life down of his own accord. Jesus didn't have to die for you, but he was glad to die for you. Think of this. Jesus died for every lie, every broken promise, every wayward word, every angry outburst, every bucking against authority, every dishonoring of your parents, every drunken crusade, every sexual act outside of marriage, every anxiety, every lack of trust in God, every right thing that you didn't do, every time you've worshipped at the altar of money or acceptance or power, every bit of gossip that has ever crossed your lips, every piece of envy that has entered your heart, every selfish god honoring act Jesus died for. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Christian, you are free. You are free from sin. It doesn't have any hold of you any longer. You can obey God from a happy heart. Your affections now are Godward. Enjoy that freedom. You don't have to live with guilt and shame weighing you down. You are now under the easy yoke of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Enjoy that freedom. Enter into that freedom. You have been redeemed. Not only are you free, you're forgiven. This should be enough for you each and every morning to wake up and have your mind blown. That God would plan to die, to send his son to die for your sins. Think about that. <sighs> Delight in and enjoy the freedom and the forgiveness that are yours in Christ. Non-Christian, if God has made provision for sins, why would you choose to remain an orphan for another month, another week, another day? Put your faith in Jesus 
you want to know what Christian life looks like and, and how to pursue Christ, you can talk to any member of this church. We'd be happy to work through that with you. Redemption is accomplished through the blood of Jesus. It is freedom from slavery to sin, forgiveness of sin upon the payment of a ransom. Let me come to this last question. Why is redemption possible? Look with me at verse 8. I'm actually going to start in verse 7. I lied. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. One of the reasons that redemption is possible is because of God's extravagant grace. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. God is rich in grace and mercy, and He is a big spender. Lavished is not an adjective one attaches to somebody who is stingy. God is benevolent. God is good. And God delights to pour His grace out upon you. God is more generous with His grace and mercy and love than the sun is generous with its light. His grace is extraordinary. Another reason redemption is possible because of God's goals and good pleasure. You see this in, in verse 9. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The word there for purpose is eudokian, and it has a few different connotations, purpose being one of them. But I think right here, a better way to translate it might be something uh, more like good pleasure, which some of your translations probably already have. Uh, good pleasure, satisfaction, well-pleasing. And it really helps us to understand what, what Paul wants us to see. Owner comments, God's predestination of adopted sons into his family was not unpleasant, but rather expresses his good pleasure. God's plan exists and is carried out and is revealed with God's pleasure. God delights to redeem His people. Your redemption, Christian, is not something that God did begrudgingly. Dear sister, God doesn't just tolerate you. He likes you. He loves you. God does all of this according to His good pleasure. He's going to unite all things in Christ, but... but you see this also in verse 9. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, when we hear the word mystery, some of us anywhere are thinking like 
Agatha Christie novel, and there are a bunch of clues kind of scattered throughout that if you ignore the red herrings and you follow all the clues, you can figure out at the end of the book that the butler did it, right? When the Bible speaks of mystery, it doesn't mean something that we can, we can puzzle together and figure out for ourselves. Mystery in the Bible is something that is hidden that must be revealed. Something that is impossible to be figured out unless God shows it. And so we have to ask this question, what does Paul mean when he's talking about a mystery here? One option is, is to look later on in the book in Ephesians 3, where he says this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he's saying the mystery is, is that through Israel, all the nations would be blessed. That, that through Christ, salvation would come to the Gentiles. And that Jew and Gentile would both be partakers in Christ Jesus. And they would be made, as Ephesians 2 says it, one new man. So that could be one option when we think about what Paul is meaning by mystery here. But I actually think he has something else in mind in the immediate context. If we read on the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Man, lots of word study this morning. You see that phrase, to unite all things in him? To unite all things? It's, it's one word in Greek, and it's like way too many syllables for me to even try to pronounce. I get past two or three, and I just, you know, I'll just let you know. You can look it up later, but it's long. And it means something like unite or sum up or in conclusion. It only shows up one other place in the New Testament in Romans 13 uh, where Paul says the sum of the law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. In extra biblical literature, it always means in conclusion and it's kind of a summing up of an argument, a summing up of thoughts. I don't think that particular understanding works here. I don't think Paul was summarizing his argument. I think a better way to, to maybe translate this verse to, to kind of give us the feel of what Paul is saying in verse 10 is to say, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite under one head all things in Christ. This is a legitimate translation. Guy's smarter than me translated it that way. It's true. But I think it gives us a sense. And, and the rest of Ephesians bears this out as the headship of Christ is emphasized. And so the picture we have here, the, the goal to which our redemption is driving is the uniting of everything under the headship of Jesus, under Jesus' rule and reign. Indeed, Jesus is sovereign, he rules over the world, but his rule is not acknowledged by everyone right now. And Paul is saying there's coming a day when everything in all of creation, 
Everything in the spiritual dimension, everything in the physical dimension is going to be in its proper obedience to Jesus. All things are going to be brought into harmony and into obedience to Christ. This brings us to this final kind of facet of redemption that I want to point out this morning. You see, in redemption, we are free from sin's power. We have the freedom to obey God. We are freed from sin's penalty, death. We've been forgiven of our sins. And we are waiting to be free from sin's presence. We look forward to this day when Christ is going to reign over everything. When he's going to end arthritis and Alzheimer's and cancer and pain and depression. When he's going to wipe every tear from the eye. But we, we long for this full and final redemption. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Together with all of creation, we recognize that things are not as they should be and we groan for a day when Christ will return and make all things new, when he will redeem the whole world, when he will bring heaven to earth, make them one. We eagerly, eagerly long for our redemption. And you know what? As we wait with patience, we can wait with joyful certainty, complete confidence. God's plans cannot be thwarted. He is in complete control. And, and what this means, brother, sister, is that if you are a Christian, you can live fearlessly in this world. Even though there are storms around you, you can hold fast to that sure and steady anchor. It shall never be removed. God's promises will come to their fruition. The world will come to its appropriate end. God's goals will be accomplished. The destiny of creation is not an open-ended matter of chance. For God has determined before the foundation of the world how the universe is going to end up. It's not simply that he has a goal or plan, but that he has the divine omnipotent ability to work that plan out. God has determined a destiny for this world. I can't think of anything that should create more optimism in you than to know that all things are in the hands of your Savior, of your Lord. 
we should be a fearless people. Great, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the early 1950s was preaching on this text amid fears of another world war and rising nuclear tensions. And he said this, Do you know that these things are so marvelous that you will never hear anything greater either in this world or the world to come? Do you realize that you have a part in these things? I do not know whether another world war is coming or not. But whether it be war or no war, as Christians, we are in this plan of God. No bomb can be invented. No bacteria can be cultivated and used. No chemicals or gases can be brought into use that can ever make the slightest difference to these things. Look at the ultimate. Look at God's grand and glorious purpose. Think of and live for the ultimate restoration of that glorious harmony which is coming when we, with our whole being, will praise the Lamb that was slain. He has redeemed us. Let us sing blessing and honor and glory and power be unto the Lamb forever and ever. Let wars come. Let pestilence come. Let hell be let loose. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the Christian message for today. Thank God for it. Rejoice in it. Church, we ought not be a people marked by anxiety, alarm, and fear. But rather, we should be characterized by a joyful certainty in God's plan. We should be a people who are brimming with blessing the Lord our God for all that He has done for us. Let us praise God for our redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that though salvation was costly, you offer it to all who will put their faith in Jesus for free. We thank you for your rich mercy which you have poured out on us in Christ. We thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for Jesus who died the death we deserved to die so that we might enjoy all the blessings that are His. Lord, You are so good to us. We praise You and we thank You and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.